rejoiced as though heaven had lost but then Jesus arose with our freedom in hand that's when death was arrested and my life began oh your grace so
your grace so free washes over me you have made me new now life begins with you it's your endless love pouring down Amen. Well, church, we're now going to enter into a time of communion. So uh, we're going to ask you to come forward and receive the elements. Please hold on to the elements. Uh, I have a, a brief uh, message and a prayer before we uh, take those up. But let's pray, and then I'll have you come forward. Lord God, we thank you so much that you have arrested death, that for us there is no real death. We thank you for what you have done for us on the cross. And as we enter into this time of an observance of the Lord's Supper, you would prepare our hearts, prepare us to examine our hearts, prepare us to honor you, and to fully understand what this gospel message truly is. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please come. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope 
of the glory of God. You may be seated for a moment while I give a brief exhortation. In verse 1 of Romans 5, the Greek word for peace is obviously in Greek, but Paul, being a Jew, was most likely thinking of a Jewish word, a Hebrew word, and that word is shalom. In fact, there's no doubt that Paul was thinking about this here. What is shalom? Shalom is not a truce. It's not a temporary ceasefire. It is a permanent cessation of hostility between two parties. It has the connotation of perfect well-being and wholeness. This is true in two ways. First, we have an abiding peace with God. Second, we have a heart. We can have a heart that is united to fear His name, as the psalmist says. The Old Testament writer spoke of shalom with God, but true shalom wasn't a reality until the New Testament, and it only finds its complete fulfillment for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. The Greek word for peace also has an added connotation. It means to bind up what has been separated. I don't know about you, but I've broken many dishes in my life. And at first I believed those ads, super glue, crazy glue, monkey glue, whatever it is, can put it all back together again. But don't believe it. It's not true. It can never put the dish back the way it was. Similarly, our relationship with God was broken because of our sin and our depravity. God provided the perfect law, but the law was only superglue. It, it could hold things together for a while, but what was needed was something that could make us whole, someone that could make all things new again. There's a story of a woman who was on her deathbed, and a pastor came and was talking to her and wanting to help her out before she passed away. She asked her, have you made peace with God? And the woman said no. And the pastor kept insisting, well, would you like to make peace with God? And she had this strange look of peace on her face, even though she kept saying no. And finally, the pastor said, well, can you explain? And she said, you see, I don't need to make peace with God. He has made peace with me through His Son, Christ. And that is the only way to have peace. We cannot make peace with God. Only He can make peace with us. Ephesians 2 says, He Himself is our peace. Christ is our shalom. And that's really what this table represents. It is two parties coming to the table, God and us. We have committed grave offenses against our King. Any one of them should cast us into an eternal separation with Him forever. But our sins go on and on. And yet when Jesus sat down at this table the, for the first time, He inaugurated with His disciples and with us an eternal covenant of peace. In a few hours, His body would be broken. That's what the bread represents. And His body, His blood would be shed. And that's what the wine represents. We could not keep God's holy law and so Christ stood in our law place. We could, as we come to this table gratefully knowing that He made peace with us and God forever. Let us never forget that, the peace, the peace of Christ. Does this good news that I just shared with you, this gospel permeate every dimension of our lives? 
Do we live under the umbrella of the gospel? That Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, that he was raised from the dead, and that he was the first fruit of the good things promised to us. He is our shalom. And because we have peace with God, we have nothing to fear in life or in death. So as we come to this table, let us remember what it cost Christ to sue for peace. Remember this gospel of grace and peace that you have freely received. Let's take a brief, brief moment of quiet reflection and prayer before we take the elements, and then I'll lead us in taking those elements. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, it says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take and eat. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Take and drink. Heavenly Father, we thank you for bringing us to your table a table that was off limits until you made peace with us. Thank you, Father, for sending your Son, Jesus, into the world because you loved us. We love you, Lord, and we are yours. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Would you join me in prayer? Take whatever posture you wish, standing, sitting, kneeling, but pray with me if you would. Father, we, we are a grateful people because you have canceled this insurmountable debt of sin that we were carrying by the willing self-sacrifice of your spotless son on that cross. Thank you, Lord God, for bringing each of us to trust in Jesus' shed blood for the atonement of our sins, for the covering over of them with his righteousness, for the remission of them altogether and completely. You've rescued us from, from the greatest danger we have ever and will ever face, your righteous judgment for our rebellion. Lord God, you, you are a great and precious Savior for us. Not only have you, have you saved us from your just wrath, but you've saved us into eternal peace with you. We're not, we're not cracked plates with a visible seam and glue sticking out. Lord, this relationship has been made just as it should have been from the start without our sin ever introduced. Lord God, thank you. Thank you for what you have done. And thank you, Father, for, for having saved us and giving us each individually this eternal peace with you. Thank you for adding us to your universal church and sowing us together in this local body. Your spirit is at work in and through your people in churches all over the globe and right here at Sovereign Grace Church Pasadena. Thank you for gathering us together each Sunday to worship your name together. Thank you for allowing us today to participate in the Lord's table together. And thank you, Lord God, for discipling us, our children, each adult, discipling us as we sit under your word each Sunday in worship. Thank you, Lord God, for the life of this church going on outside of these walls and outside of this day. Thank you, Lord God, for the service of the church one to another. Thank you for meals made and, and homes cleaned for friends who are in need of the help and in need of encouragement in Christ. Thank you for using us to minister to the needs of, of ailing members of our church. Thank you, Lord God, for demonstrating your love for us and causing us to work in love for each other, prompting so many brothers and sisters in Christ to serve Patrick and Yanni and Marcel in love by helping them move yesterday to their new home in Monrovia. We're grateful, Father. We're grateful for this, this dear family being closer to us. Please, Father, meet them in the remaining hard work that is left to make this new house a home to them. Father, would you please, Lord God, make this, a, this place a rich blessing to them and make them, Lord God, ambassadors of Christ to their new neighbors, a rich blessing to the community into which they've just moved. 
Father, would you please allow us as, as a local church to display a unity in Christ that magnifies your glory to an onlooking world. Please use our love for one another to make the gospel of Christ even more attractive as we proclaim Christ to our families, to our friends, and to those you allow us to interact with on a regular basis. We thank you, Lord God, for what you're doing, and we praise you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Thus, you can take your seats. Thank you for coming and worshiping with us at Summer Grace Church today. Thank you especially if you are here for the very first time uh, visiting with us. Uh, it's our privilege to host you in this worship service. Uh, we have a gift for you. If you're new today or if you're just new and haven't gotten this gift yet, uh, on your way out in the lobby, there's an information table. If you'd stop by there, uh, we have a book of articles uh, on the theme, A Christ-Centered People, that we would like to give to you. This is actually... Um, our denomination's journal, a uh, quarterly journal that they put out, and uh, we have it in printed form and would like to give that to you as a gift. And while you're back there, if you would uh, be so kind as to fill out an, a guest information card as a record of your visit and leave it there, that would be wonderful for us. Okay, uh, we want to move on with um, uh, an announcement first before we dismiss the kids. So if you guys could wait patiently just for a minute, we're going to have Jesenia and Grace come up and tell us about the upcoming church picnic. Grace is already, oh, they're up here already. Very good. Thank you. Good morning, church. Grace and I are here this morning to invite you to our Harvest Church picnic. Here's a little history about our church. It was the culture of this church to have a couple of picnics per year, but we haven't had one since September of 2018. We moved church buildings and we attempted to have a Labor Day picnic in 2019, but the rain canceled the picnic. Let's bring back the church picnic tradition. Mark your calendars, yes, uh, mark your calendars for October 31st. This year's picnic will be held at Victory Park following the service. For previous picnics, we've had you bring a side dish or a dessert. This year, we want you to bring yourself and bring a guest. Here's a sneak peek at our menu. We have Jeff Trelore and Rick Leahy making burgers and hot dogs. We have Roxanne Trelore's famous Caesar salad making an appearance, along with Kit Fisher's pasta salad, and Stephanie Schiffer making all of the desserts. We will have a cotton candy machine and goodie bags for the kids, and our very own photo booth made by our church photographers. This year's hashtag, and we will put this up on social media, this year's hashtag will be SGC Picnic 2001. Why do I say this? Because if you post on Instagram or Facebook, we would like you to tag the church. And each tag will enter in to win, uh, will enter in for a raffle to win a prize. So we want you to tag the church. If you don't go on Facebook or Instagram, now is the time to start. Follow the church if you're not yet. 
Uh, we're still looking for enthusiastic volunteers, so if you'd like to help with the picnic, please come and see me. We'd love your help. And now Grace with the entertainment. Hello, everyone. So this year's picnic, like Jasenia said, is going to look a little different than ones in the past. However, it's going to be just as fun, if not even more fun, than the past ones. So this year, we will be having open games like ring toss, cornhole, bocce ball, giant Jenga, bottle bash, croquet, badminton, and volleyball. <laughs> There's a lot of them. We will also be having a bounce house for the kids if they'd like it. And we will also be having some light competition as well. We'll be having a pumpkin contest. Where I'm going to have the kids decorate pumpkins. Anyone can do it, not just the kids. We'll give away prizes for that as well. And we will also be having two three-legged race competitions, one for children 13 and under, and the other for 14 and up so that adults can do it as well. Those prizes will include In-N-Out gift cards because the two of us doing this are a little biased because we both worked In-N-Out. But you know, you gotta love their burgers and everything. <laughs> so, um, let's see. Um, so, I want everyone to get excited for this year's Harvest Festival. And to sign up, just come to me if you wanna be in any of the competitions and I'll get you signed up for that. You can have teams of three or more for the three-legged race. So, have fun, fall down, get hurt. Actually, don't do that. But, <laughs> thank you so much everyone. I hope you all come to the festival. Make sure to bring people too as well. Excellent. Thank you for thank you for planning this, uh, ladies. Thank you for um, putting an effort that's necessary to get an an event like this planned and and organized and held. Um, let's get back to a, a wonderful fellowship together, and this picnic is a signal of that. So make your plans for the October. 31st. Um, be now. It's not too late to be telling others about it. Invite folks. This is a, a wonderful opportunity to invite people that are not part of this church, uh, not even in the Lord, to come and, and be present when the church is gathered and to watch with, um, with I hope, wonder as they see uh, people loving one another, uh, people enjoying Christ together. So uh, be inviting others to that as well. Okay, kids. It's time for you to be dismissed to your uh, children's ministry class. Go make your way quietly to your teachers in the back. As they do that, um, one more thing to let you know about. Uh, many of us will be in Idlewild next weekend for Celebration California. We're very much looking forward to that. But that also means that there will not be a worship service here in Pasadena for Sovereign Grace Church uh, next Sunday, October 10th. So if you're not registered for Idlewild and therefore not going to be up there, uh, we encourage you to uh, find another local church to worship at, uh, have your uh, Sabbath day of worship, and then rejoin us for the following Sunday. And um, we won't do that again to you for a very long time. Okay, let's uh, have the dedication of our offering. We're, we're so thankful for you and, and, and count it precious that you love the Lord and are serving him by contributing to the gospel ministry of this church, sending in your tithes and offerings during the week, either by Zelle or by checks sent to the church office. Um, 
We, um, you can also bring those gifts here. Uh, we now have a box in the back. It's right at the end of this hall, on uh, this hallway, um, walkway on the right-hand side, the mailbox-looking thing that's marked as offering. Uh, you can put your cash and check gifts in that as well. But let me pray and dedicate these gifts to the Lord. Father, we are so, we're so grateful uh, that, you, that you provide so wonderfully well for us. Thank you for every way and in every way that you meet our needs, both materially and spiritually. You are exceedingly generous to us, especially since none of what you give us in your kindness is deserved by us. It's all undeserved. So as an act of worship, we dedicate to you the tithes and offerings that we have sent into the church that we bring here today. Father, would you please, as we give, would you grow us in generosity? And as we give, Lord God, would you use these gifts to build your kingdom through this church in Pasadena and in this area and throughout the world as we're able to contribute to those efforts? In Christ we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, you may, have, uh, you may have noticed that uh, Pastor Ron is not with us today. We've actually swapped pastors uh, this Sunday. Uh, Ron is down in Santa Ana uh, preaching, and we have from Santa Ana uh, Kyle Holton. Um, he is the pastor of Cross of Grace Church, our sister Sovereign Grace Church in Santa Ana. Um, Kyle has a a special love for God and for his church and is a dedicated servant of Christ uh, in what I find to be a, a unique way. Um, God has given Kyle a, a love for the church and for especially uh, the Latino community in Santa Ana. So uh, back in 2017, Kyle planted the church that is now Cross of Grace and he has served as its senior pastor for the entirety of that time while also working a full-time job. Um, now, I am a full-time worker in the marketplace and just a very part-time pastor, so this is heroic in my mind and just serves to indicate his love and dedication to God and to Christ's church and the building up of it. So let's welcome Kyle as he comes and shares the word with us. Thanks, Bill. Oh, so good to be with you all this morning. Uh, just Enya and Grace, if they're still in here. Great job with that announcement. Both of my boys who were sitting next to me turned to me and said, hey, Dad, can we come up here for that picnic? And I said, no, guys, we're going to be down in Santa Ana. Uh, but who knows, maybe we'll get down to church and come up and join you guys. It's a distinct pleasure to be here with you all. There are so many faces here that I've never met. Some of you I have. This is my third time preaching at this church. The first time was well before we were sent off to plant when I was a pastor at Sovereign Grace Church in Tucson, Arizona. And then I came and preached again right after we had planted. And Lynn introduced me that time and introduced our three boys as Huey, Dewey, and Louie. And I'll never forget that. Uh, and since then, we, we've added a little girl to our family, a little foster girl whom we'd love for the Lord to add to our family as a permanent fixture 
But as we moved from Tucson, Arizona to Santa Ana to do this crazy two-job bivocational endeavor of planting a church in, in a very difficult city, we couldn't have done it without partners. Without Sovereign Grace Church of Orange, Sovereign Grace Church of Pasadena, and you may be completely unaware of the role that you played in our church existing, but I can tell you, matter-of-factly, we would not be a church if it were not our partnership with you. So, so on behalf of Cross of Grace Church of Santa Ana, Cruz de Gracia de Santa Ana, thank you. We love you. Uh, we, we pray for you often. You, you, are, you are a church who we think about often, and our church knows who you are. This morning, we have the joy of opening up God's Word. When Ron asked me to come up and preach here, and we had the absolute privilege of having Ron come down, I sent him a number of possible texts, and, and he keyed in, keyed in very quickly on Acts chapter 20, verses 13 through, thir- through 38. We preached through the book of Acts last year, just finished in May or so of this past year, but Ron saw this text and he said, I, I think it would benefit our church to hear from this passage. And so, by God's grace, I, I hope that that will be the, the effect, the intended effect of it benefiting you, of the Lord using it to build you up in faith, in unity, in joy, in hope, in contentment, in satisfaction would be the actual outcome. So. Uh, I'm going to read this passage first, if you would read along with me, and then we'll pray together. Sound good? So beginning in Acts chapter 20, verse 13. But going ahead to the ship, we set sail for Assos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for so he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And when he met us at Assos, We took him on board and went to Mytilene, and sailing from there, we came the following day opposite Chios. The next day we touched at Samos, and the day after that we went to Miletus. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Now, from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. And teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me but I do not count my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course 
and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands minister to my necessities and to those who are with me. In all things I've shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, you, you've spoken clearly, powerfully through your word. We pray that as you send it forth today, that it wouldn't return to you void, that it wouldn't return to you having not accomplished that for which you sent it forth, namely to reveal to us your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that we would behold him once again today. Lord, I pray that, that my words, my insufficient words, would serve my friends, my brothers and sisters here at Sovereign Grace Church of Pasadena. May they be encouraged. May they be filled with the knowledge that they are not alone in this mission, but they share this mission together with their sister churches, both in California and around the globe. Thank you for the privilege of beholding your word. Now, would you teach us and grow us, sanctify us and fill us, in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So this passage, after being miraculously converted on the road to Damascus, the Apostle Paul, he spent the rest of his life planting churches, proclaiming the gospel all throughout the ancient Near East and Asia. And he went on several missionary trips Three, in fact, long missionary trips, planting churches, visiting churches that he had planted, visiting churches that his co-laborers had planted. And in this occasion, he's at the very end of missionary trip number three. 
And he's going to pass by Ephesus, but he he can't go to Ephesus because it's not on the way. But he wants to talk to the church at Ephesus. Particularly, he wants to talk to the elders at Ephesus. And so he sends a a messenger to go and get them so that they, they would meet him at Miletus. Now these men... Though, though Paul hadn't planted the church at Ephesus, Apollos had, Paul had labored with them for three years. They'd fought spiritual battles together. They'd been in the trenches together for years. They had carried burdens together. They had wept together. They, they had rejoiced together. They'd become part of one another's families. They'd known each other's wives and children. They'd cared for one another. And Paul now has a sense that his entire ministry and maybe even his life may be nearing an end. And so when they arrive, Paul effectively gives them his final testament. And this is a solemn moment in Scripture. You see, when facing finality, what matters most becomes vividly clear, doesn't it? And this is why we should pay attention to Paul's address to the Ephesian elders, because we get to sit in on this intimate conversation and hear one of God's most faithful servants tell other Christians what matters most. You see this kind of, this kind of clarity during final moments in movies when, when a son comes to his father's bedside as, as he's about to pass away, and the father says, now son, you be a good boy, take care of your mother, Right? Or maybe you've had moments like that, moments of finality. Perhaps following the death of a loved one, maybe the end of a significant period of your life when you realize something major is coming to a close. In those moments, the the trivial, the, the unimportant, the things that you stressed over are the things that just got you riled up become insignificant. You realize how meaningless they were. It all fades from view, and the substance of what really matters most comes into clear relief. How many of you know who Jimmy V was? Jimmy Valvano, who's a celebrated college basketball coach. Some say one of the greatest of all time, but he's actually not known primarily for his coaching, he's known by most for a speech that he gave in 1993 at the ESPY Awards. And the organizers of the ESPY Awards allowed him an extra amount of time to come up and speak, not because of his coaching career, but because he was dying from metastatic cancer. And the speech he gave was a final testament to the world. From this dying man who saw in his mind what really mattered, here's a short snippet. He started it off. He said, time is very important to me. I don't know how much time I have left. And I have some things I would like to say. Hopefully, at the end, I will have said something that will be important to other people too. 
And he proceeded to say things that have remained important in the hearts and lives of those who heard for years to come. His speech lasted 10 more minutes. His life lasted two more months. If you were giving a farewell address, a final testament, what instructions would you give? What would your final testament include? What would you tell your children? What would you tell your brothers and sisters and and friends what matters most? What would you tell them? Thankfully, most of us won't have to think about that for some time, but But what is most important in life doesn't just become important at the end of life, does it? Finality just provides the necessary clarity on what has always been important. So wouldn't we do well to take the opportunity this morning to be reminded of what's most important right now? No matter how much time we have left, whether you're 15 years old or 80 years old, what a good thing it would be to be reminded. We can have that opportunity today in Acts 20 through Paul's farewell speech. And as good and moving as Jimmy V's speech was, Paul's was so much better. If I were to summarize Paul's speech, his final instructions to the Ephesian elders, it would be this. There is no better life than the one God called you to. There is no better life than the one God calls you to. In verse 32, look at it with your Bibles open. Verse 32, Paul says, Now I commend you to God and to his grace. Which is to say, friends, I've lived and I've learned that God's way is better than my way. I've tried to go my own way. I've been tempted to go off to the world's way. I've learned that God's way is better than all other ways. And now I entrust you to him and commend you to the life that he's called you to. You will not find greener pastures outside of what God has said matters most. So I'd say we lean in and we listen to Paul, wouldn't you? Let's do that this morning. So in order to simplify and give structure to this brilliant farewell address, I've separated this into four points, four ways in which God, or in which Paul shows us that God's way is better. So if you're taking notes, you have to write fast right now, but we'll, we'll revisit them as we get there. But first point, better to lose your life than to waste it. Second, better to watch for wolves than to welcome them. Third, better to give your money than to covet more of it. Fourth, better to embrace friendships than fear the loss of them. These are, these are so relevant for us. When I preached this message in Santa Ana, we had some great small group conversations afterwards. They hit home. They remind us of what matters most. So let's jump into this first point. Better to lose your life than to waste it. 
Look at verse 20. Verse 20, Paul says, you, you, you know how I lived, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house. Now, look at verse 27. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Finally, look at verse 31. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Paul seems strangely bent on reminding them how hard he labored to proclaim the gospel during his three years at Ephesus. And as he describes those three years in Ephesus, in verse 19, as serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. But then look at verses 22 and 23. Verses 22 and 23. Now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. So I don't know what's going to happen in Jerusalem, except that I'm going to suffer. Trials and hard labor of gospel ministry are behind him. Imprisonment and suffering are before him. And Paul sees all of it as immensely worth it. Why? Verse 24. But I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I've received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul uses the imagery of a race here, that I may finish my course. To, to paraphrase verse 24, all of the hard work, the suffering, the trials are worth it because my life is not precious to me. Finishing the race is precious to me. Paul wrote similarly, similarly to the Philippian church in Philippians 1.21, for to me, you probably know this verse, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. To live is to be fulfilled in Christ, to die is to be in the fullness of the presence of Christ. Win-win. What's not a win is seeking fulfillment outside of Christ. We, we, we tend to view death as the greatest tragedy, don't we? But actually, for Christians, to waste your life is an even greater tragedy. Because for us, death is a doorway into something so much greater. Only in a temporal sense is death a tragedy for, for the one who's been found in Christ. What's a greater tragedy? is wasting your life trying to find fulfillment outside of Christ. He, Paul would rather his Ephesian friends and us, he'd rather us lose our lives for Christ than waste our lives seeking joy apart from him. I, I remember just a few months ago, 
Uh, I was with Ron Boomsma and Lynn Baird and Bob Coughlin at, at, a, at a small retreat. Um, Bill, I think you were there as well. And, and, and Bob was reflecting about a time when somebody asked him, Bob, why do you keep going in ministry? Like, these past few years have been insanely hard. I'll never forget what, what Bob said. I genuinely don't think I'll ever forget what he said. He looked back at that person and he said, you know what? There are some things just worth giving your life for. And that was one of the most galvanizing moments in ministry I've ever experienced because I thought, yeah, you're right. There are some things like the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ that are just worth giving your life for. So what, is it, what does it look like to waste life? Well, prioritizing the prize of easy living can easily be a wasted life. A life where you and you alone are the one you're working to lift up can be a wasted life. A life spent on what doesn't last forever can be a wasted life. A life invested in what I think versus what God has said can waste precious years of life. A life content to stop and just sit down in the middle of the race waste what remains of a life full of potential for experiencing the joy of Christ and bringing glory to Christ. For the record, Paul finished the race. He finished it well. He wrote, in, he wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4-7 in his final days, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And I, I would encourage you to look at your pastors, to Bill, to Ron, to Lynn, who went before them, to look at how they've run their race, how they've given their lives for something that is so worth it. And I know that their prayer for you would be that each one of you finish well. So friends, it's better to lose your life for Christ, to spend and to be spent for his glory, than to waste your life seeking fulfillment apart from Christ. Number two, number two, better to watch for wolves than to welcome them. Better to watch for wolves than to welcome them. The second instruction is summarized in verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. Now, admittedly, this is spoken to pastors, to elders, who, using the Bible's imagery, if the people of the church are a flock, a bunch of sheep, and sheep aren't very smart, none of us are all that smart, but if, sheep, if the church are a flock, pastors are its shepherds, and even most of us shepherds aren't that smart, uh, charged with the protection of the sheep, and thus charged with the protection against threats to the health of the church. And these threats are likened to wolves. Wolves come from outside the church, as you see in verse 29, not sparing the flock. Jesus describes these wolves in Matthew 7:15 as false teachers, those bringing in messages contrary to the gospel. Wolves come from within the church. Verse 30, speaking twisted things, spreading rumors, criticizing and complaining, twisting God's word, dividing the flock. 
But, but finally, wolves come, wolves come from within us. If you're watching for wolves, you don't have to look very far oftentimes. Because there are oftentimes wolves lurking within our very own hearts. Notice that Paul says in verse 28, pay careful attention to yourselves. Our own sinful hearts can be gateways to harm and to destruction to the church. Gossip. Okay, we're good. Gossip, discontentment with leadership, with ministries, with what's going on in the church, political opinions that begin to rise above the waterline of God's word, secret self-indulgent living. So though pastors are charged specifically with protection, Every sheep should be on watch for wolves. But, but, but you might think, well, of course we would. Why wouldn't we watch out for wolves? This is a simple instruction to obey. What, what's, what's the deal here? Why, why, why is this being pressed in? Because, because welcoming wolves often seems practical and flat out easy. When we're feeling discontent or upset, the desire to vent it to anybody we know is strong. Gossip is an insidiously powerful temptation. In in a volatile political climate right now, it's easy to give your political stances sway over God's word. But listen, friends, hear Paul Why is welcoming wolves not an option? Because neither we nor the church belong to us. If if Sovereign Grace Church of Pasadena, for for instance, owned this building, uh, and and, and everyone in here agreed to let vandals spray graffiti all over it, then, I mean, go, go for it, I guess. But you rent this, this church building. It's not yours. You're charged with stewarding this building according to the priorities of the owner. And friends, the chief shepherd purchased his church, the body of Christ, with his own blood, verse 28. He's the owner. He's the master. We do not have the liberty to freely allow the wolves of gossip and discontent and political activism and, and whatever else comes down the line to run rampant and to cause destruction in his church. So watch out for wolves outside the church. Watch out for wolves inside the church. Watch out for the wolves inside your own heart. Because the church was purchased by the blood of Christ. It is not ours to do with whatever we wish. Thirdly, 
better to give your money than to covet more of it. The third thing that, that, that matters about life, when we're talking about possessions, possessions seem to occupy so much of our conscious thought, and Paul's third instruction, his farewell speech, is one that, listen, we all need to hear. Because with the cost of living through the roof in 2021 Southern California, coveting more money is a strong temptation that threatens to grip each of our hearts. Because in our heart of hearts, we're tempted to believe that it is more blessed to receive than to give. You want to test if that's true? Well, as you look toward your future, imagine your income triples. What excites you more about that possibility? The improved standard of living you could achieve for yourself or the greater potential forgiving that you would have? Does an investment in a new car or an investment in our shared mission get your blood pumping harder? Are your dreams more connected with personal financial stability or with helping the weak and the lowly in your community? Your neighbors who have no kind of stability. Now, I, I don't pass this test with flying colors, but Paul did. And he points to his own example, verse 33, saying that he coveted no one's riches. He says in 1 Corinthians 9 that he, he and all pastors d deserve to be paid for, for their labors. But he said, I, I didn't take any payment. I didn't take any payment except for what I absolutely needed. Instead of seeking to receive, he spent his life giving, giving his energy, his effort, his time, his money, and even the money that he deserved. How did Paul justify this as better? Verse 32, the God he commends us to gives grace. He builds us up and secures our inheritance. In other words, the God that Paul lived generously before and commends us to, he generously gives grace. He then makes us rich in grace. He then holds out an inheritance, an infinite inheritance of grace through his son, Jesus Christ, all of which was secured through his cross. We have treasures beyond our wildest imaginations. And God has given them to us without limit. It's that our joy to live our lives giving to one another. If it's true that he is a giver of riches, then we, like Paul, have no reason to covet the riches of this world. If we're looking for blessing in this world, it comes through helping the weak and giving generously, not by being on the receiving end of all we've ever wanted. And, and those of you who are generous, which I would imagine it's most, if not all of you, you know the joy of giving. of being able to, to help and support those in need. To be able to, to put your resources behind the advancement of the gospel in this city. That's worth it. Finally, fourth and final point. Better to embrace friendships than to fear the loss of them.
Paul had spent three years building the church at Ephesus. He'd spent three years laboring alongside the Ephesian elders. They'd become fellow soldiers. They'd become close colleagues. The, the spiritual brotherhood they shared in Christ had become material. The, their bond was less like two things stuck together with glue, drawing on Ron's illustration there, but more like the bond between the multiple fingers that share the same hand. And yet here's Paul saying goodbye in verse 25, saying that they'd never see him again. Sorrow seized them. Tears filled their eyes, and when the time came to say goodbye, verses 36 through 38, and when he said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all, because they'd never see him again. Imagine the pain of a finger being separated from its own hand. Of a finger being separated from the other fingers. In fact, I, I, I'm sure that these guys probably would have preferred to lose a finger than to lose Paul. That's probably not a stretch. And here's what you need to see here, though. Paul and the Ephesian elders knew that this day might come, but they invested in their friendships with fierce resolve, nonetheless, all the while. I, I tend to agree with C.S. Lewis who said, friendship is the greatest of worldly goods. Certainly, to me, it is the chief happiness of this life. Friends are a tremendous happiness. But sometimes that greatest of worldly goods seems to be ripped from our hands. I, I use the finger and the hand illustration on purpose because that's how God describes the local church as a body with, with members that are interconnected with one another by, by blood vessels and flesh and bone and muscle. Not, not such that they can just be casually disconnected from one another. So when one is separated, it hurts. Goodness gracious, it hurts. And after being a pastor for a dozen years, it's not the kind of discomfort that I ever relish on any given day, nor will I ever. When we lose those friends, the sorrow can feel like a red-hot brand on your soul. Family leaves the church for a better youth ministry for their teenagers. A friend moves to another country to do missions work. Twenty people leave the church to be on a church planting core team. Your best friend sails into the sunset as you stand on the coast of Miletus. And these are just the good reason. These are just the good reasons that friendships are disrupted. And I get it. The, the, the fear of the potential loss of friendships can produce such a strong compulsion to just pull away 
to guard yourself, to put up walls, to avoid embracing new friendships, to remain anonymous in the church, to keep things at the surface level, or, or, or even to jump ship because maybe the friendship grass is greener elsewhere. If we weren't all Christians, that compulsion might be justified. But 1 John 5.11 says this, that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has this life. What kind of life is that? Eternal life. Eternal life that we'll spend together. For Paul and his friends, it was true. They would never see each other, they, they would never see each other's faces again in this life. But because they'd shared a common faith in Jesus Christ, they knew they'd be reunited, never again to have their friendships disrupted. Never again. Never again. For the rest of eternity. Our shared eternal life is Christ, or our shared eternal life in Christ guarantees that our friendships will never end, but only be paused. Just paused. For the time being. But as commentator Conrad Gemp says, even with the prospect of eternity together, there is no doubt that farewells on earth are difficult. These Ephesian elders, they still wept. They still mourned. They still grieved. But the difficulty of farewell is a pale comparison to the sweetness of one of God's sweetest earthly goods. So, as we close, and worship team, go ahead and come up. Let me add my voice to Paul's and encourage you. The people sitting next to you may be at this church for 10 more years. Or maybe somewhere else in 10 weeks. We don't know. We don't have those kinds of guarantees. But if they are Christians, you'll spend forever with them. So invest in and embrace the friendships the Lord has placed before you in this church. And give one another the confidence that, hey, I'm going nowhere because I'm invested in this church and I'm invested in you as my brother or sister in Christ. No matter how this turns out, I'm going to go after it. And perhaps you'll find yourselves years down the road having cried together and celebrated together, having ministered the gospel together, having watched out for wolves together, having been generous to your shared mission together and looking back on a life not wasted but spent well for the glory of Christ. But to be sure, you will one day and forevermore Stand next to that friend in glory in the presence of Christ, your Savior. Friends, there is no better life than the one that God called you to. Let's live it together to the full. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, you've called us to a life that requires trust in you. A life that when we do trust in you, 
results in joy, results in fulfillment, results in a life not wasted. Lord, I pray that you would help us each to live our lives well. That you would help us to watch out for wolves, to to be generous with one another and with our neighbors. That you would help us, Lord, to invest in and lean into friendships that no matter what happens in this life will last forever because of what we share in Christ. So it's in his name we pray. Amen. Stand and sing. Now why this fear and unbelief has not the Father put to grief his spotless Son for us? And will the righteous judge of men
Friends, we've been given a sweet reminder that God, by his power, is providentially arranging every detail of your life. There's no better life for you to lead than the one he's called you to. Now, we can press against that. We can want differently. We can try to push away the call of God to a hard way of life. But this is where the precious gift of Christ will be most received by us. I often, um, I've lived in California for most of my life and been a Christian in California for most of that time. And California, Southern California, is a, a difficult place for us to be. It's not easy. It's expensive to live here. And if you're part of a church like this, like a kid and I have been, and many of you have been here with us ministering for 20, 30 years, it can be painful to see the people come whom we love and invest in and then go. But know that God is at work in all of that. 
God is rearranging the pieces of his church, the members of it, to be exactly where they ought to be. And for every one of us who is called to be here, God is precious still and sustaining us by his grace. And I encourage you to consider that a calling to be here in Southern California, to be here on mission for Christ Jesus in this place where the gospel of Christ is needed. We must be proclaiming it to the many thousands and thousands of unsaved people here. Embrace God's call. There is no better life than the life God has called you to. So let's live it for his glory. Let me send you off with a blessing. The benediction today comes from Acts 20, verse 32. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among those who are being satisfied. Kyle, thank you so much for preaching to us. Receive this word. Go in peace and in fellowship in God.